Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars that we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, doing the part my brother Greg usually does, so we have a bit of a change this week. Um, Greg went to Tennessee last week to interview the people of the small town in question, but... I'm just supposed to set the stage and kind of read the thing um, like he usually does. But to be completely honest, I have not heard from him uh, since he left for Tennessee. Anyway, uh, Greg set his phone to automatically upload the audio he recorded so I could piece together this episode. And it's just... Okay, things did not go as planned. So I'm here in West Craven, Tennessee, population 3,491 since Mrs. Alice had her baby last night. Uh, This sleepy town is a paradise for its residents. Low taxes, low cost of living, good jobs, nice community, everybody seems to know each other. Uh, Neighbors are friendly, house doors are generally left unlocked, crime is low, and the kids play in the streets or at the local park. The median age is 48 years old, the average income is around $56,000 a year, and the average summer softball league game is well attended. Nestled in the hills a few hours from the Blue Mountains, the town seems like a great place to settle down, raise a family, grow old, and watch the world turn from your front porch. Under the surface lies a history of unexplained natural disasters. Hail and ice storms in the middle of summer. High heat and humidity melting the ice off roofs and roads in mid-January. Tornadoes on a clear day. And one central figure at the middle of it all. The mysterious Bell Witch. A folktale creation that even today, the folks of West Craven kind of believe, kind of fear, and kind of laugh about. On this episode of Relative Disasters, The Witch and the weather. Hopefully this is working. Uh, So I'm going to start off by talking with the incredibly friendly folks of the town, uh, let them know about the podcast and what I'll be covering, and get some insights into who I should talk with. Well, here on Relative Disasters, we always like to begin by talking with experts, especially those well-known in their field. I am here today with Sutter Kane, author, philanthropist, and lead archivist of the local historical society. (laughs) You're too kind. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down and talk with me. I honestly never thought this would work out. Uh, On a personal note, Mr. Kane, I am a big fan. Thanks very much. Uh, You got lucky. I'm between projects right now, so I've got some free time, and I always like talking about the Bell Witch. She's one of the reasons my wife and I moved back here in 95. Really? Oh, yes. Fascinating story. So, uh, a little background on the town? Of course. Um, The town of Craven was an early settlement named after a man with the last name of Craven, either George or John. The sources conflict. The two things they can agree on is that Mr. Craven arrived with a Robert of England, by all accounts, a very charming and outgoing gentleman, and a lot of family money from back in Europe. The town really sprang up from around him and making good use of the terrain. The name Craven means defeated. 
likely descended from the French word cravante, uh, meaning to be crushed or overwhelmed. Okay. Itself descended from the Latin crepare, meaning burst. Neat. Okay. At any rate, uh, the townsfolk naturally drifted apart between the folks who settled in this valley and the folks down the road over the hills. Sure. The split was formalized in 1822, with the hill surrounded valley becoming west and the rest of the township becoming East Craven. I love stories like that where you can trace back the details. Oh, yes. Very satisfying. <laughs> well, uh, well, what can you tell me about the mythology surrounding the Bell Witch? Of course, of course. Um, historically, we know that Mary Bell was born in the Bell House in late 1699 and died in the town square in 1743, hung for being a witch. Not burned at the stake. No, no. That was a mostly a European convention. Okay. The colonists preferred to hang their witches, ah. and she was, from all accounts, a very intelligent woman who refused to marry and settled down to be a farmer's wife. Uh, she served as a sort of apothecary to the town, going from house to house with home remedy cures for various ailments. Okay. Some historical accounts have her having some success with this, by the way. Okay. At any rate, uh, the summers of 1740 through 1743 were unusually hot, causing a drought and crop failure. Sure. And once people started to starve, they looked for someone to blame. Right. Since the local leader was someone whose advances she'd spurned years uh, before, this man, on. one Thomas McCready, uh, made sure she was blamed for it. For they all knew she was a witch, didn't they? Oh, no. Yeah. There was no trial. Um, there was just a mob that went to her home in the dead of night, dragged her out in her nightclothes, and hung her in a hastily erected gallows in the town square. Jeez. The historical accounts uh, begin to merge with the fiction at this point, I'm afraid. Um, she apparently issued some kind of curse right before they <laughs> dropped her. Okay. And there are some interesting historical parallels here. Sure. Over the course of the next year, from 1743 through 1744... A number of irregular misfortunes struck the town. Okay. Hailstorms, uh, tornadoes that seemed to last longer and strike harder than usual, and earthquake in 1744 that shook the town's church off its foundation and repeated claims of nightmares of her face in the contemporary diaries we still have. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, and then around 1755, she just disappears from the local consciousness. Huh. She reappears in 1829 in one letter sent by a young man to his mother, claiming that he saw a woman walking in the woods after dark in the middle of summer and a dreadful storm sweeping up over the hills as soon as she'd walked out of sight. Okay. And then again, in the early 1900s, all the way up to today, huh. every once in a while, a sighting or a bad storm will show up and the people who've lived here for a while will just you know, shake their heads and smile and say, oh, that's just Mary Bell, making sure we don't forget about her. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and have you ever seen or heard anything personally <laughs> no heavens no um one of the things i enjoy about mythology and legends is that they're always malleable always changing to fit what people are frightened of in their particular time sure it, it is a sad story a woman yeah. being murdered simply for being self-sufficient and helpful helpful to her neighbors but there's no real evidence of anything supernatural just a few coincidences sure honestly it's comforting for people to have a name for the random awful things that happen in their lives my neighbor took a huge piece of hail into his windshield last summer smashed right through it okay. when i noticed it he just smiled at me and said well i guess mary bell doesn't like nissans <laughs> sure okay so she's like a like a local trickster spirit yes yeah exactly a, a name to blame for the random events of life and that's a great comfort to people i feel stories sure. are important the right stories the ones about truth and justice and love those can change the world. 
First of all, it was a huge honor to be able to speak with Sutter Kane, a big fan, and I want to thank him and his lovely assistant, Linda, for meeting with me. Mr. Kane suggested I ask around at the local slaughterhouse, of all places, uh, to get a better feel for how these disastrous localized weather patterns tie in with the mythology. So, the slaughterhouse is not at all what I expected. Uh, it's a very nice white two-story house near the road and a clean, mostly concrete building with a large no-admittance sign outside to the sign stating, Halal or Kashrut, just ask. Uh, th now, this is a family business going back to the 1950s, begun by the man they all affectionately call Grandpa Sawyer. The Sawyer Slaughterhouse has quite the reputation in this area for professionalism, safety, and excellent butchering skills. They specialize in local meats for local folks, handling livestock from local farms and catches from local hunters. I'm here with Gunnar Sawyer, third generation... Uh, fourth. Sorry, fourth generation abattoirist. Oh, that's nice. Fancy. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's life like in a slaughterhouse? Well, it's a job, you know. You get sure. used to it. It's kind of puzzle-solving business in a way, making sure you get the right cuts, making sure. sure you're using anything you can from the animal. Okay. We shipped the waste down to a company in Louisiana that makes eco-friendly fertilizers, sausage casings, gelatin. Okay. The blood goes to a pharmaceutical company to be used as emulsifiers, stabilizing agents. Wow, okay. We make sure nothing but good meat goes out to our clients and nothing goes to waste. Grandpa's big on that. I like that. I, I can tell you take a lot of pride in your work. Well, it's work that can be really nasty sometimes. Sure, yeah. Don't focus on what you're doing. Ac accidents can be awful. Okay, yeah. So you stay focused and you remember what you're doing is going to feed people and help folks out somewhere down the line. That That's a really great way to look at it. And I get it. We're a small operation. We can choose to operate like this. We don't have to deal with the big chains and suppliers, so we can afford to take our time and do the job the way we want to do it. Sure, sure. So... So what can you tell me about the tornado a few years back? Sure, well, it was this light season. Okay. Uh, heavy seasons usually fall in winter, some big orders in the spring, but the summer's usually pretty slow. Okay. I mean, it's still busy, it's just not as busy. Okay, sure. So it was around the middle of July when we get this weird sort of lightning storm. You know about the weird weather around here? Yeah, I've, I've been told. <laughs> well, this was weirder than weird. This was some grab your Bible and gun weather, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. So lightning starts, and the hail starts, and after, like, two minutes, nothing. Okay. Whole sky clears up, clouds are gone. Nothing ever happened. Wow. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I'm heading back to work, when all of a sudden I feel this wind, this kind of grabbing wind that gets you when a tornado hits. Okay. And I'm screwed, right? I'm sure. halfway between the house and the barn, open ground, so sure. I drop down and hug the dirt, and I can feel my shirt being pulled and I can see the sticks and rocks and mud flying around, right? Just swirling around and I don't know why I did it, but I looked up. Okay. And the sky's still blue, clear, no clouds, no funnel, nothing. Oh my god. Okay. It's a tornado without the tornado. Sure. Yeah. And then it rips off towards the fields in the back of the house, just passing right between the house and the barn. Jeez. Yeah, so I'm thinking... It's weird, and I'm a little <laughs> unsettled, right? Sure, of course, yeah. So I get up and brush myself off, and I'm looking around for any damage, and I swear to God, I saw a woman walking in the field out past the house. And there's no way, right? Sure. Not a hair out of place, her dress is in place, nothing. 
and nobody goes for walks near our house, you know, because of the smell. Sure, sure, right. And there she is, just calmly walking through the teeth of this thing, this invisible tornado. Okay. I can see the grass getting flattened around her, and she just strolls on through. Wow. And it's no mirage, right? It's not some trick of the eye. That is incredible. I'll take my eyes off her for a second, and she's gone. So I figure somebody just died, right? Sure, she's yeah. just been picked up and thrown. She's in the top of a tree somewhere, right? Sure. Nope. Nothing. Nothing. Nobody missing in town. Nobody hurt in the hospital. Nothing. She's just gone. Wow. And I know what I saw. You know, I, I deal with real stuff all day. I cut up animals because it's my job to help feed people. It doesn't bother me, but this, man, this threw me. Sure. Hey, uh, uh, what's, what's he doing? Ah, don't worry about him. He's real good with that tool. My reception here is terrible, so I got a phone message uh, from the local mechanic shop. The, uh, the local garage has a guy working for them who may have actually seen uh, the witch firsthand. So I'm going to head there now and talk with them. And, and even if, it, you know, it's nice to just have an excuse to talk to more people, I guess. Carpenter's Auto Repair is a short, squat brick building that sits on the corner opposite the gas station in the town center. I'm here speaking with Tommy. Hi. <laughs> the head mechanic and owner. And standing behind Tommy is Mike. Just to give you an idea, Tommy, how tall are you? I'm 6'1". And Mike is easily towering over him. He's a big guy with a big, gentle smile. And when you told me about this, I did some asking around. Sure. And everybody loves Mike. He's a real sweetheart. Oh, yeah. Big Mike, we call him. And he doesn't talk. That's right. So, listeners, this is as close as we can get to a first-hand account. Mike is unable to speak, so Tommy's going to speak on his behalf. That's right. So, Tommy, tell me Mike's story. Uh, right, well, uh, I've known Mike since he and I were, what was it, first grade? Yeah. Sat next to each other in Miss Strauss' class, got into trouble together, and you know how it goes. Sure, yeah. Anyway, that fall, we had a bad tornado kick. Okay. Hail the size of fists. Well, yeah. Mike's fists okay. starts coming down. <laughs> Big hail, right? The bad stuff. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so Mike's home alone. His parents were out on a trip somewhere. Uh -huh. It was the 70s. You could just leave your kids for a week. Your, <laughs> your neighbors would check in on them and make sure they had dinner and went to bed on time, you know. Sure. I, I, that sounds nice, I guess. <laughs> so hail starts hitting our roof. I remember because my dad had dragged us all down to the storm cellar and I could hear the sound of the hail hitting the ground outside. Jeez. It sounded like mortars. Okay. Or fireworks, almost. Wow. Big thuds, sometimes a big crash as it hit a window somewhere. Jeez. Yeah, it was scary. And over at Mike's house, it was worse. Okay. Big hailstones started hitting their roof, and their roof starts to crack. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So he runs upstairs to his little sister Lauren's room, and she's not there. Oh. Mike starts to panic. He's the older brother. It's yeah. his job to keep her safe, you know? I mean, sure. I mean, he's only a kid himself. Yeah, but that's how we were raised. You look out for your family, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So he finds Lauren. She's huddled in the closet, scared out of her mind. Okay. Uh, I mean, she was had she had to be what four years old, five, four, right, right. Okay. Uh, so he 
grabs her hand and they start to run to the door. And the roof caves in. Jeez. And without a second hesitation, my guy here throws himself on top of his little sister. Oh my goodness. Seven years old and already a big kid. Sure. So he's got her fully covered up. Okay. And Lauren told me that she was all crying and he just kept looking down at her and smiling and saying, shh. And she felt safe, right? Because her big brother was there to protect her. Wow. And that's how they ride out the storm. Mike taking a beating from the hail and keeps Lauren safe. Okay. The roof caved in in such a way that the beams formed a little tent, which probably is what saved their lives. Yeah. Anyway, the first guy on the scene was the local doctor, the kid's doctor. Okay. Great guy, a little bald man who's always wore one of those, what were they, uh, tweed jackets. Sure, okay. Yep. We all loved him. He passed away a few years back. Okay. Uh, anyway, he was driving by the house and saw the roof and just rushed in. Sure. His car's all dented, his windshield's all smashed up, but he runs in to see the kids, if the kids are safe. Okay. Doxy's Lauren standing in the room, all shell-shocked, with fallen beams all over the place. But she's okay. He sees Mike kind of slowly get to his feet behind her. Oh my goodness, so he was okay. Sorry, you're standing right there. Obviously you're okay. I just got caught up in the story. And then the doctor says the damnedest thing happened. Okay. Mike doesn't remember it, but Lauren and the doc both saw it. Okay. A piece of the roof comes down kind of sideways, hits Mike like a bullet, and knocks him out of Lauren's second floor window. Oh my god. Right? So he's laying in on the lawn. Okay. And the doc's thinking, oh my God, that's it. This poor kid's dead. Sure, of course, yeah. He goes running down the stairs carrying Lauren because they don't know if the whole house is going to collapse. Oh my goodness, sure, yeah. And he sees Mike laying on the front lawn. Uh And when they get closer, he just sits up. Wow. He's completely fine. He's not even (laughs) concussed. Yeah. Wow. The doctor rushes the kid to the hospital and they're both fine. Everybody says it's a miracle, but not Mike. Okay. So get this. Okay. The doc said that when the nurse asked him how he wasn't hurt, he just said, she helped me. What? Lauren swears she saw a woman kneeling over him and putting her hand on his chest before he sat up. Okay. But the doc never saw anybody. Wow. He doesn't talk anymore. Uh, The doctors say he's got no physical or neurological damage. He just doesn't, you know, talk. Huh. Hasn't slowed him down any, though. Okay. He went away for a few years, was a sous chef in a fancy restaurant in Nashville. Okay. He's real good with a knife. Oh, wow. Nice. And he wins the power walking race every year. Very cool. And do you remember her, the woman who helped you? He just smiled and nodded, listeners. Well, listen, thank you both for meeting with me and sharing your story. Of course. I talk enough for both of us anyways. (laughs) Well, at this point, we have provable weird weather events and a lot of sightings of a woman seeming to be at the center of them. Either this whole town had really bought into their own mythology or there was something else going on. I headed down the road to the University of Few Towns Over to speak with a Dr. West. Uh, Dr. West did decline to be recorded for this podcast, but he did give me some good background on some certain geological features of the town that contribute to its odd weather patterns. A lot of it went over my head, but it has to do with the way that the hills are situated, the way the valley was carved out by glaciers, and how the rapid changes in elevation keep the warm air from rising properly and the cold air from moving around quite right. It was all fascinating stuff and perfectly explained the weird weather. But 
it's just so tantalizing to believe in the supernatural, right? Uh, another citizen that preferred not to be recorded did agree to be interviewed. Pluto Michelson lives out in the hills outside of town in a home that his grandfather built himself. Uh, saw the witch herself one night, just standing on a hilltop. Apparently she turned to look at him and made a sort of shh gesture. Next day, one of the worst tornadoes ever to hit the state swept right through town and not a single shingle on a single roof was disturbed. In one case, the tornado approaching a house then veering away at the last second like a cat playing with a mouse. So, we've got tornadoes moving around on their own to avoid houses, hailstones smashing roofs to pieces, and my next stop was to see Pound Foolish the Clown. Hi, kids! Now, some of you may have seen Mr. Foolish on local TV, and I've got to tell you, he is a genuine delight. <laughs> well, thank you, young man. Thank you for agreeing to be interviewed. I, You know, I've always had a soft spot for clowns. Well, that's nice to hear. Some folks can be uh, pretty scared of us clowns. Dear listeners, it's a phenomenon called cholrophobia, a fear of clowns. And it usually seems to stem from the smile or frowning makeup that clowns have on. Something about that seems to short-circuit our brain's ability to read facial expressions to determine the intentions of the people around us, which makes them deeply uncomfortable. And some folks just don't like balloon animals. <laughs> or, or the way we watch. <laughs> sure, right. So, so how long have you been a clown? Well, actually, I graduated from Clown College in uh, 1992. Actual Clown College. That's so cool. Well, I certainly think so. I'm originally from the Nashville area, okay. so yep. after I wasn't able to get work in the circus, I moved back there and started doing kids' parties and the like. Sure. One of the kids' parents uh, were in the local TV business, and they put me on a Saturday morning local slot, and, well, the rest is history. <laughs> well, that, that's very cool. So... Uh, what can you tell me about the witch and the weather? Okay. <clears throat> well, I was playing. I like to call it playing, not working. That's really nice. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I was playing at a birthday party in January a few years back, and it was cold. I mean, it was January. Sure, right, yeah. <laughs> so I'm telling jokes and making balloon animals, and the kids are just laughing and having a great time. Sure, right. When all of a sudden, it gets really hot in the house. Okay. And I mean really hot. I thought at first someone had bumped the thermostat, but then I looked outside and I could see steam, literal steam, coming up off the driveway. What? Oh, yeah. Ice was melting so fast it was running down the storm drains and just pouring off the roofs. Oh, my goodness. Oh, the party was down in a walkout basement, you know, with the, the big sliding glass doors. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So... I'm sweating through my clothes. Right. The kids are miserable because they all got sweaters on and okay. stuff. Yeah, sure. So so we opened the big glass doors expecting to get a rush of cool air, right? Right, sure. And it's boiling. Oh it's humid. It is hot. Wow. And then, just like that, poof, gone. And now it's freezing again. Back down in the 30s. What? Well, the kids cool down. <laughs> I'm freezing. We close the doors. Sure. The adults start heading back upstairs. Right. I start doing my red balloon acts. Yeah, I okay. have this uh, this bit with a balloon, but it's actually a solid piece on a stick. Okay. I mean, it's really funny. <laughs> the kids, they sure, love yeah, it. Sure, yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> but nobody's laughing, and okay. I can't figure it out. They were loving the show a minute ago, even with the heat, and now they're just staring. And I realize they're not looking at me. They're looking behind me. Through the sliding glass doors. Okay. So, I turn around. And 
she's just standing there at the end of the driveway, just standing there looking at us. Okay. And I think, well, maybe it's uh, one of the parents, you know, or, uh, taking a walk or something. Sure. And the kids, they start crying. You okay. know, these were young kids. Right, right. Little yeah. kids, and, and, and they're crying. Not like screaming or sobbing, just kind of murmuring with tears running down their faces. Oh, my God. And I don't know what made me do it, uh, but I just kind of took a little step forward, you know? Sure, right. And I think I said something like, go away. I didn't say it loud. Heck, I'm not even sure if I said it out loud. Okay. And she stared right at me, you know, just for a second, and then just turned around and walked across the street, past the houses over there into the woods, and gone. Jeez. Unsettling, right? Yeah. Well, the kids were okay. okay. I told a few yeah. stories about being brave and being kind, and then it was like it never happened. Just silly dances and jokes for the rest of the party. Wow. That is, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it, it sits with me, though, you know? Her eyes. Can, would, would you be comfortable describing them as best you can? I, 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 I can't. I, I'm sorry. I, I really can't. Well, after talking with uh, Mr. Foolish, my, my next stop was the one that everyone kept telling me I needed to make. It's a little green and red house straight away from the local school servicing K-12. through The man I was sent to speak with was the custodian there for nearly 50 years, an absolute pillar in this community, and someone who has claimed for years to have had haunting nightmares of the witch herself. So I'm here with Frederick. Hello. Frederick has lived here in this part of Tennessee his whole life. Born in 1945, yep. And he's a really beloved figure here, oh, truly. Shit. No, seriously, everybody I talked to with his background for this story was like, oh, you've got to go talk to Frederick. He's like everybody's dad. Oh, come on. So, so tell me about your history here. Sure. Well, let's see. Born in 1945 at Sisters of Mercy. Okay. My mom and dad worked in the old pin factory down near the river, and I was the school custodian from when I was 28 until I retired in 2021. Oh, okay. Saw a lot of young folks pass through those doors. Always had time to hear them and some sweets in my pocket to share with them. <laughs> my wife and I were never able to have any kids of our own, so every kid in that school was like mine. I heard that you and your wife took in some kids who were having a tough time. Uh, well, sure. Good kids. Just needed some stability. And it was nice to have an extra set of hands when I had to work in the boiler room. Never liked the boiler room. Not a big fan of heat? Nah, it just always seemed, I don't know, mad, you know? Angry-like. Okay. Well, that segues nicely into what I wanted to ask you about. As, as I said before we started recording, I wanted to talk with you about the Bell Witch. Oh, yes. I'd heard the stories, of course. Any kid growing up in my time heard the stories. Sure, sure. And we've always had rough weather around here, all explained by folks who know a lot more than me, but it'll scare you sometimes. Yeah, of course. Now, the witch, they yeah. said she died in the 1740s, okay. but that she could come back any time if enough people believed in her. Just a tale to scare the young folks. You know, we had a nursery rhyme about how she'd come to you in your dreams. Okay. Then she'd beckon you with her fingers, you know, really scary, long fingers. Yeah. And if she killed you in your dream, you'd die in real life. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Sc <laughs> scary stuff for kids. But we always had stories, you know. 
I dreamed of the bell witch last night. No, you didn't. Shut up. <laughs> okay. That sort of stuff. Sure, know. sure. Well, sometime in the late 80s, I think it was 88 or 89, I started to have a dream. Okay. I'd be walking through the school at night, and in that dream logic, right, right. the hallways would stretch out forever in front of me, just endless rows of locker and black and white tile. Okay. But at the end, there'd be a set of double doors like what the gymnasium used to have. Okay. And there was this woman standing in front of the doors, not standing, like floating almost. Not like flying, but like like she was underwater with her hair all wavy and rising. Oh and she'd reach out her hands for me and the fingers were too long and I'd wake up. Jeez. Well, I wasn't sleeping too good as you can imagine. <laughs> sure. And the dream kept happening. Sometimes it'd be once a month, sometimes it'd be once a week. And then it started happening every night. And I got worried, you know. Yeah. I talked with my therapist about it. I talked with a neurology doctor. Okay. I wasn't sleeping. I was afraid to go to sleep. Imagine that. A man in his mid-30s afraid to sleep. I'm, I'm so sorry. Anyway, one night I had the dream again. And this time I couldn't wake up when she reached for me. And her fingers were long and her teeth were like needles. Oh, my God. I woke up in the hospital. What? Two of the kids I'd taken in, Nancy and Glenn, good kids, gentle kids, had a rough childhood and nowhere else to go. Okay. Well, they'd heard me yelling in my sleep. And when they come to check on me, my heart had stopped. Oh, my God. My wife was away at some conference down in Nashville, so they'd figured out how to drive stick. And, well, they'd got me to the hospital, and the doctors got the thing pumping again. But I'll tell you, it scared the hell out of me. Yeah. And them, too. Sure. Good kids. Anyway, the night after I got back from the hospital, I had the dream again. Okay. Except this time, it wasn't me. It was like I was just watching. There was the same long hallway, the same double doors, and all that, but there was this little boy walking down the hallway. I recognized him. He was one of the kindergartners that year. Okay. And she was down at the other end of the hall just reaching for him, and something inside of me snapped like a rage. Okay. Come after me was one thing, but this was just a kid, you know. Sure, sure. I remember running at her and just tackling her through those double doors. I was yelling something like, this is my school, these are my kids. I don't know, something. Yeah. And behind those doors was the boiler room, all red iron and darkness. Dream logic, you know? Sure, yeah. And I wrestled her over to the boiler door, and she's clawing at my face with those long claws, and I just shoved her inside and held her there. Okay. And she's snapping at me with those needle teeth, and I can feel my arms and face burning, and I just held her there. And then I woke up. My bed was soaked. I'd sweat right through my pajamas, but I never had that dream again. Wow, that's that's intense. That's incredible. Yeah. I saw that boy, the kindergartner, in the hallways the next day, and he just come up to me and gives me a big hug. Okay. Said he'd been scared, but I'd made him safe. I think that scared me more than the dream. After our conversation, Frederick put in a call to Pam on my behalf. Out of respect for her privacy, I won't be using her last name and... Just a heads up to our listeners, her story deals directly with the death of a child. She agreed to talk with me and be recorded, and we met by the shores of a beautiful lake nestled away in the hills that serves as a home to a summer camp. So, uh, Pam, thank you for agreeing to talk with me. Of course. This place really is beautiful. How long have you worked here? I've worked here since 1980, actually. Really? <laughs> Got the job right out of college, and I've been the program coordinator here since 1997. Wow, that... 
That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I started as the cook. Oh, that's fun. Well, yes. I was also young and didn't know any better. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> My son and I made this place our home back as soon as we moved here. So what can you tell me about your son? My boy. My boy was special. Yeah. I know all parents say that, but sure. he was a good kid. Everybody liked him. I mm -hmm. mean, he got teased sometimes. He was okay. tall for his age, and he had a slight facial deformity, okay. but he was always kind. I remember him so clearly learning how to use a knife in the kitchen with me, mm -hmm. and during the pre-camp season, he'd always grab a machete and help out the groundskeepers clear out the brambles and vines. <laughs> wow, a machete. He was big for his age. Okay. And the groundskeepers loved having him help out. Sure, sure. Yeah. He always played goalie for his winter hockey team. Oh, cool. He was just fearless about stopping kids' shots. <laughs> he loved the goalie mask. He said it made him feel brave, like nothing could hurt him. Oh, wow. He'd wear it sometimes when he went to help the groundskeepers. He was quite a sight. <laughs> I can imagine. This little boy, my little boy. Are you... Are you able to talk about what happened in June of 1986? Sure. That's why you're here. Yeah. There was a boating group, okay. rowboats, canoes, kayaks. He loved to take them out into the water. He always said it looked like crystal to him, so clear you can see the fish swimming under you. It was a beautiful day, cloudless, sunny, not too hot, not too humid. He was out there with the other kids in his group, I think there were about 12 of them, plus the counselors. Okay. He was always a little apart from the other kids, kind of shy. And the fact that we lived here and the other kids were only there for a few weeks each summer made it hard for him to form connections. Sure, yeah. The staff liked him. He was, he was like a little mascot to them, I think. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, take your time. If, if this is too hard... No, can... no, it, it's fine. It's just hard. Sure. After all these years, it's still hard. Of course. Anyway, a water spout came up. Do you know what a water spout is? Uh, sure, it's like a water tornado, right? Just about. But they can't happen on a lake this small. And they don't just come up out of a clear day. Oh, my God. The counselors got all the kids to shore, but he'd... He had been separated from the rest. His boat was broken up, and he was just gone. I'm so sorry. We dove into that lake for hours. I remember it getting to be about midnight. The moon was up, and we had two teams. By this time, the fire department, police, first responders, just anyone who showed up to help. Half of the people were walking through the woods in a line, calling out for him in case he'd been thrown clear. Sure. The other half were in the water, just diving down and over and over again. The lake gets real deep in the middle. Finally, I told the sheriff to just stop. I didn't want anybody else to get lost. That's, that's awful. We found his life jacket two or three days later, bobbing on the surface near the edge of the lake. I was so... I, I was so angry, you know? Sure. I was angry at the counselors who'd let him get out of their sight. I was angry at him. I was angry at myself. It took years to forgive us all. He was a little boy having fun. His counselors were kids themselves, and there wasn't anything they could have done. There wasn't anything I could have done. I just wanted someone to blame. But that's life, isn't it? Sometimes there isn't a villain. There's just an awful thing that happens. 
could have sworn I saw him for a few years after that. I remember so clearly seeing him as a young man, still wearing that brave goalie mask, walking along with his machete, clearing brush and humming to himself. One time I was so sure it was him, I ran out of the kitchen in the middle of the meal. But it was never him. It was never him. I'm, I'm so, so sorry for your loss. Thank you. It was just a horrible act of nature, a freak occurrence. I've heard all the rumors about how the weather's always wrong here. Sure. They're just rumors. I've certainly never seen a witch or anyone who isn't really there. Well... Except for him. It's all just in my head, but... Thank you for sharing all of this with me. Really, I'm... I'm so sorry. Thanks for asking. And thanks for that. You take care out there. Looks like a storm coming in. So, my interviews are all finished. Um, I'm just making one last stop before I get on a flight with a several hour layover. Um, I've been told that I need to go walk the uh, the stick path as the kids call it out here uh it's really really cool so out here in the woods just outside of town uh there is a very clearly marked pathway with these little with these little stick figures they're um made out of what looks like um uh twisted up branches sort of, and they mark a very clear path um, through this, geez, okay, uh, through this section of woods here, uh, which is good because otherwise I would be <laughs> completely turned around. This is, uh, they're very disorienting. The, the trees are, they're sort of oddly uniform, but at the same time, very, very easy to get turned around out here. Um, like you can't really see the sun, so there's not a good way to, uh, uh, navigate that way. And so, uh, in fact, I think I am a, a little turned around. Um, let's see. All right. That one looks a little bit, right. So that's okay. Oh, uh, fortunately, I am not alone out here. Um, there seems to be uh, another person walking the same path. So, uh, I mean, everybody's so friendly here. I'm just going to see if I can ask for directions. Um, gosh, she is walking fast. Um, excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm just a little turned around. Okay, so that's the last episode that Greg sent. Um, I I don't want to worry you, dear listener. I'm sure everything's fine. It just sounded kind of, to me, like he dropped his phone. Um, he probably just forgot to charge it, though, knowing him. I have not been able to get a hold of him, um, but, you know, he's really distractible. I'm sure he's fine, you know. He's fine. Anyway, 
Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. A special thank you to our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. This week's episode was brought to you by Lynn and Georgia, who forgot to pack their wool socks for Ernest Shackleton's expedition. We hope you've enjoyed the story, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. Our next disaster will be another sports one. We're going to talk about the Ebrox Stadium disasters. Uh, well, as long as Greg hasn't missed his flight or, gosh, something, and has charged his phone, obviously, and, like, <laughs> made it out of the woods of Tennessee, I don't know. Um, and from both of us, we wish you a very happy April Fool's. <laughs>